right, church, if you will open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 is where we are at this morning. If you're following along with us in the Bible reading, which I, I really hope you are, then you know this was actually part of this day's reading portion. And so if you haven't read for today, I'm going to get you ahead a little bit, all right? And then you just kind of, you can supplement that uh, a little, little afterwards. So Joshua chapter 7, again, is where we're at this morning. I've titled this sermon, The Defeat of Unconfessed Sin. I usually start off uh, by, you know, start off our sermons by telling you what an exciting story or passage that we're diving into or the exciting point that, that comes from this. But today uh, is, is not necessarily one of those days. This is a story that has a very difficult and pointed truth uh, but one that I think is, is very difficult to, for us to grasp and respond to. And perhaps, I guess, a better way of putting it is that this, uh, this passage this morning bears a truth. Uh, it's not necessarily difficult for us to grasp, like I said, but often proves too difficult for us to respond in obedience to, unfortunately. And so hear me when I say uh, I'm not being overdramatic in saying that, uh, because this morning's passage is very, very pointed. Uh, it has a very pointed uh, prompt for how we're to respond to it, and I'll offer that opportunity later. However, this is a story and a truth that I think all believers must grapple with and respond to accordingly. And the truth, which this passage places a spotlight on, is the reality of unconfessed sin in our hearts. And it also reveals the importance of dealing with such sin within the community of faith. And so I honestly pray that all of us here this morning would be convicted and moved to repentance through the truth that the Lord has for us in this text today and in this story. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we jump right in to Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few." So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherabim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, 
Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you to grapple with the difficult truths which your word presents us with, May we be reminded that your word is full of truths that are difficult for the hearts of sinful man, but it is full of truths nonetheless, truths that we must grapple with, that we must deal with within our own lives individually and corporately as your church. And so I pray that as we read your word this morning, study your word, that you would exposit these truths, that they would pierce our hearts, and that we would respond in obedience to your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So again, I hope that you've been following along with us in our Bible reading. And if not, that's, that's totally fine. I think you'll, uh, again, like I said, this, this passage this morning is full of a truth that is piercing for all of us. And if you are, then you know that coming right off the back of what is, we, in this story, we're coming right off the back of what is one of the more popular conquests of Joshua and the people of Israel. I mean, it even has a song written about it, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, right? So that, that's the battle of Jericho is what happens immediately before this. And the people march around the walls of Jericho, then the walls come tumbling down just as the Lord said said that he would give them the promised land. And so as a part of that, we see, uh, and what we're going to see here in a little bit, I'll I'll prompt you to kind of read some of that. Um, To understand what happens here in our text this morning, we need to see what the Lord reveals and how the Lord works amongst the people. You need to know uh, the instruction given by Joshua to the people before allowing them to conquer Jericho. So turn back just uh, one chapter to chapter 6, and uh, in verse 16, we see this. All right, so chapter 6 and verse 16. And at the seventh time, so it's the seventh time that they're to march around the walls, right? When the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. All right, so that's key. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So there was clear instruction leading up here, uh, right, to this conquest of Jericho that before they were about to march around the walls for the seventh time, which was going to be the the magic number, right, when the walls were going to come tumbling down, he said, again, that the Lord has dedicated everything here to destruction. And as we pointed out last week, this is all in accordance with God's judgment against sinful pagan humanity as he has sanctified his people and sending them to conquer the promised land. So those that he conquers are under his judgment. And so as he does this, he said, this, this city and everything in it is devoted for destruction. So do not take any of these devoted things lest you make us devoted for destruction. It's very clear instruction, right? So they they march around the city, and we see this man, Achan, takes some of the devoted things for himself out of selfish greed and hides them, right? And so that's what brings us to our verse this morning. Verse 1, again, I'll I'll point us there to chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith. So again, notice this is a, a communal thing. Just as it said in the instruction in chapter 6, that if you take any of these devoted things, this entire city is devoted to instruction, that you will make us as a community of faith devoted for destruction. So 
Verse 1, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, all that family line and everything, that'll come to play here in a little bit, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So you might, in your mind, in our sense of justice, be thinking, how, why this individual is the one who has sinned, why is this coming upon the people? Why is this coming upon the community? So now, as we read in context, this was a communal decree that had communal consequences, therefore. But it must be carried out at the individual level. However, when it comes to being in the community of faith, a repeated theme for the people of God that we see throughout God's word is how we are responsible for one another in the community of faith in terms of upholding God's standards. Therefore, there is an underlying truth to what is happening here, or maybe it's not so underlying, right? And that's the first point on your outline this morning. Hopefully you grabbed one on your way in. Unconfessed sin has communal consequences. And you're gonna, we're going to hear that word a lot, unconfessed sin. And we'll define our terms here in a little bit, right? But uh, unconfessed sin has communal consequences is what we're seeing play out here. So be sure of this. Our unconfessed sin and our hidden sins do not only affect our lives, but the lives of those around us. God has created his people for communal living. In fact, God has created all people to live in community. This is why we see even those outside the faith grasping for some sense of community anywhere they can find it. The problem is the place where they're supposed to find it is within the community of faith with the triune God and the community of the church. Therefore, if unconfessed sin exists in us, what that can highlight is unhealthy practices in the accountability and the unity of the community of faith, right? So unconfessed sin has communal consequences because oftentimes what unconfessed sin in an individual can reveal is unhealthy practices of either accountability or unity within the community of faith. The obvious thing that unconfessed sin exposes is unhealthy behaviors and patterns within our own individual lives, right? Because, I mean, we're the ones who have this unconfessed sin. So that one's obvious. However, the less obvious thing which becomes evident is twofold. There's a few things that I've pulled out. Either the community of faith has become a place where people don't feel comfortable openly wrestling with sin, therefore they feel like they have to keep this sin unconfessed and hidden, rather. Or the community of faith has become a place where those types of things aren't addressed, dealt with, or identified as sin. And both are completely an abomination to how the community of faith is supposed to live. So let's be clear with what we're talking about. Again, I said we need to define our terms. Let's be clear about what we're talking about when we say unconfessed sin. Because what I mean by that isn't just those things that are just between you and God, right? Because we all have, have sin in our life that maybe we haven't divulged or opened up about to a small group or another brother or sister. But we've, we are at least dealing and, and bringing that honestly before God. But I, that's not even what I'm talking about when I'm talking about unconfessed sin. So that would be, again, those struggles which maybe you haven't been completely forthcoming about, but you're dealing with it within your relationship with the Lord. I'm talking about, when I, when I say unconfessed sin this morning, I'm talking about those things which you have attempted to hide within the far reaches of your heart. 
so that no one knows. Those things which you haven't even brought in honesty and repentance before the Lord to say, Lord, take this from me. Those things that you aren't even willing to divulge to the one who already knows them. Those things that not only have you attempted to hide from your brothers and sisters in Christ, but those which we oftentimes, too often, intentionally neglect to come before the Lord in repentance to. But here's the key, friends. What this passage also makes clear, even here just in verse 1, is that unconfessed sin is not hidden. We might attempt to hide it. We might think we can hide it. And sure, we can hide it from our brothers and sisters. We can hide it from the community. But unconfessed sin is not hidden from the Lord. What is clear is that God's anger here burned against their sinfulness at the hand of Achan before it was even made known and exposed to the community. So the community doesn't even know about it yet. And the Lord's anger is burning against it. Why? Because it's not hidden from him. He knows. And so the reality that we need to realize here is that within the community of faith, again, like I said, unconfessed sin in our own individual lives can reveal unhealth in our community and how we practice our faith. It can either reveal that we aren't a community that where people don't feel comfortable openly wrestling with sin, or let it not be that we are ever a community of faith that has become a place where those types of things aren't addressed, dealt with, or identified as sin. So again, we see that unconfessed sin is not hidden, and it has communal consequences. So don't be fooled into thinking that you can hide anything from an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present creator God. If I, I'll recall you to remember just a few weeks ago, Moses' warning to the tribes of Reuben and Gad there after reciting the arrangements of their settling, Moses warns the tribes of what would happen if they were not to fulfill their covenant responsibilities. And you remember what Moses said? Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So sin is only hidden, if it is hidden, if it's only hidden from man. But God sees the heart. So those sins which we keep in the dark, God sees them and knows them. Indeed, Those are the very things which he laid upon Christ on the cross that we might be freed from sin and walk in the freedom of the light. Consider this truth from Proverbs chapter 24. It'll be on the screen behind me. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 12 through 14, if you want to make note of that. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. So again, oftentimes throughout wisdom literature, we see this illustration of honey or things that are sweet to the taste. It's the truth of God's word. So eat honey, for it's good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. So wisdom says, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can hide anything in your heart from the one who created you. The other reason why hidden sin does not exist, is that God will not allow it to remain among his people. And that's the controversy here. That's the issue that we see come to play in this morning's passage. Because as we continue reading, pick back up in verse 2. So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So Joshua sends out spies just as he once upon a time was a spy. And he and only Caleb brought back a faithful report. And the men went up and spied out Ai. 
And they returned to Joshua, verse 3, and said to him, Do not have all the people go up. So they get a little cocky here. right? So the spies, they come back, and it's not that they bring back an unfaithful report. It's not that they bring back a report saying, like, maybe we should like, just kind of go around. No, they say, like, look, we don't even have to send our whole army. Like, don't send everybody up. Don't make everybody have to toil to go up there. Let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. Verse 4, so about 3,000 men, so Joshua listens to this, about 3,000 men went up from the people and they fled before the men of Ai. So they get a little cocky, they send 3,000, these 3,000 men go, I'm sure, thinking that they're just about to just steamroll I, just like they saw happen in Jericho. And what happens? They flee before the kingdom and the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men. So in the retreat, 36 Israelites are killed and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them at the descent. And take note here of the description of the people and, and what this does to their spirit here. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. What's interesting is that that same analogy and phrasing used here to describe the people's hearts melting like water. That's the same wording that Rahab used to describe the hearts of the pagan Jericho to the spies when they came and she hid them. Now, noticeably absent also from the report of these spies and their strategy and Joshua's listening to the spies is any sense of confidence in the Lord and his leading and provision. And his delivering them and giving them the city. Their abundance of confidence seems to be wholly placed in their military might rather than the Lord's deliverance. However, another truth which is revealed here is that unconfessed sin causes unforeseen harm. So again, who has sinned? The fact that there is sin in the camp completely hidden from the people at this time. And I can imagine that Achan... Never in his mind, when he took some of those, those things that were set aside, that he thought in his mind that 36 of his brothers would be killed because of this. Never in his mind did he think that this would have any sort of effect on anybody but him. And so I want to point out a couple of ways. So unconfessed sin causes unforeseen harm. And I want to point out two areas in which it causes harm. First, obviously it harms ourselves. We would expect that, right? I mean, if we acknowledge that it's sin and we acknowledge that it's unconfessed and that we're trying to hide it, we should at least be willing to acknowledge and be ready to accept that it harms us. Unconfessed sin corrodes from the inside out. It's gangrenous. It's rot that will leave us wallowing in a pigsty, longing to eat like the pigs. All the while, God stands ready to extend mercy on account of his faithful, loving kindness. Because here they stand, knowing full well the law and the gracious provision of the sacrificial system, and yet Achan's desire is for self-satisfying greed. He knows how the Lord has provided a system of sacrifice in which he can atone for this, in which he can go in repentance to the Lord. And he stands in unconfessed sin, and it causes harm to himself later on, as we see. But here's the other thing. Unconfessed sin causes unforeseen harm to others as well. For those of us who are in Christ, what more confidence do we have than Achan would have had in this moment? He knows of the sacrificial system, yet doesn't go. So how much more confidence can we who are in Christ have? We have free access to our great high priest who sits at the right hand of God the Father, forever making intercession for us that we might bring such things to him and die to those things. Unconfessed sin would have us paint a caricature of God in our minds. That were we to bring such things to him, he would, he would just instantaneously smite us. But what does the author of Hebrews say of our confidence in Christ as our great high priest? 
In Hebrews 4.16, we read this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Achan stands knowing the harm that this can and will bring upon himself. But he did not anticipate the way in which unforeseen Unconfessed sin causes unforeseen harm for others as well. When it comes to sin, we, do not, we don't get the luxury of being the only ones affected by it. Nor do we get the luxury of knowing how, who, or in what manner our sin will affect others. But know this. Our sin will cause harm to those around us. In fact, this should be for us, one of the telltale signs, and for them, that says something's wrong. If we or someone around us are acting in a manner that is not grace-filled, edifying, and Christ-centered, then something is wrong. And again, I'm not saying this only pertains to some grave moral sin. The sin described here, then that's often what we think about when we think about hidden sin, unconfessed sin. Again, I guess, you know, I'm kind of contradicting myself. There, there is no hidden sin, right? But when we think of unconfessed sin and those sins in which we attempt to hide within our hearts, we often think of some just incredibly atrocious, abominable sin. And yet, we often use that as excuse for those sins which we consider petty and small. So we just let those continue to go on unconfessed. And so the sin described here in this account isn't some heinous sexual sin, but essentially what amounts to grand larceny. He stole. And so, again, the issue that we're talking about here isn't some specific just uh, heinous sin, but I'm, I'm referring to all sin here. So don't let yourself be deceived. You might be, because that's how we can easily... Just sweep our own sins under the rugs by saying, well, I'm not hiding like this or that that I would think would be really bad. Maybe I'd do this, you know, maybe a little bit of that, but that's not as bad as this, right? What remains true here, the standard is whatever sin it may be in our lives, we must tear it out at the root and die to it. We've discussed some of the consequences of unconfessed sin And so now I want to highlight on your outline two points about how the Lord responds to unconfessed sin. So we've highlighted some realities of unconfessed sin. Now we're going to kind of shift our attention to how the Lord responds to unconfessed sin. Pick back up in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. And he and the elders of Israel, and they put the dust on their heads. So it's not just Joshua here that's mourning, and that's what we see here is this, this uh, posture of mourning before the Lord because of these that have died and because of now what does this mean for our future moving forward? Like how can we face our enemies? And in fact, that's what Joshua pleads before the Lord. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? Similarly, an echo of what we see the people say, Why did you even take us out of Egypt? O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? So Joshua's fear here is that that all these other nations, what they're supposed to be conquering, are going to hear about this, and now they're not going to be afraid of Israel at all. Remember Rahab, she said that the people had heard about what God had done for the people of Israel, and their hearts were like water. And so now the roles have been reversed. The people themselves, their hearts are like water water. For the Canaanites, verse 9, for the Canaanites, all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, will surround us, cut off our name from the earth, and what will you do for your great name? So Joshua kind of offers this challenge directly to the Lord. 
Like, you're supposed to be delivering us, so what are you going to do for your name now? How's your name going to be made great now that you've allowed this to happen? So the same Joshua from chapter 1, who personally told by the Lord, only be strong and courageous, the same people who recited to Joshua aloud, only be strong and courageous. Yet here they are seen lamenting and mourning that they would have been satisfied beyond the Jordan. The next point there on your outline. The Lord uses unconfessed sin to humble his people. The Lord uses unconfessed sin to humble his people. I want to uh, read for you a quote from Pastor John Piper where he puts it, he puts it this way that without approving of sin, God governs the sinful acts of men for his own good and wise purposes. Again, without approving of sin, God governs the sinful acts of men for his own good and wise purposes. This is what we see happening here is that that Joshua's like, I don't see a way forward. How could you let this happen? Is his plea before the Lord. So they have been totally humbled in this moment. When unconfessed sin is fostered, allowed, and even accepted among God's covenant people, you can be sure that the Lord will use that unconfessed sin to humble his people in adoration of his name. Because here's the thing. As we saw last week in looking at the Shema, God has designed the community of faith to be just that a community where God's law and the love of God is held up as the standard. Not just among the people at large, but in the small group of the family, the household, the tribe, the clan. Then that spreads outward to the people as a whole. So this standard is meant to be upheld to one another. And in fact, a little later on, we see that this as the, the tribe, the clan. This is how the sin is found out within Achan. So Joshua brings forth each tribe, discerns that Judah is where the sin lies. So he goes through each tribe and determines that Judah is where the sin lies. Then he brings forth within Judah, he brings forth each clan and discerns that the Zarahites are where the sin is unconfessed. He brings forth the patriarch of each household, and determines that Zabdi is where the sin lies. That the household of Zabdi, the sin lies there. Then he goes through each family head within the household. So again, the household would have been like, like the, the first family line that starts right and goes down from there. Okay, So that's Zabdi. Then he goes through each family head, each male in that. And within that, he discerns that Achan is the culprit. And so this is why small groups in Sunday school are so crucial for the life of our church and really for the life of the church in general. Because within these small groups, within Sunday school is where we see hard questions, confessions, and testimonies of faith being lived out in the light of community. I want to show you some statistics. I'll pull, if you'll pull up that uh, graph slide for me. Thank you. I want to show you some statistics real quick that I think bear out some of the issues that we see at large in the church today. This comes from Lifeway Research, and you can see there uh, the title for this study, A Shrinking Percentage of Churchgoers Are Involved in a Small Group. All right, so that's, you just see uh, starting in 2008 and just gradually moving onward, and that is a percentage of worshipers. So the, the percentage of those who came to worship on a Sunday and were also involved in a small group, whether it be Sunday school that morning or some other type of group organized and structured by the church, just gradually shrinking from 2008 to uh, 2022 when this study was brought forth by LifeWay Research down to 44%. On average, 44%, right? So... It's gradually declined in average small group attendance since 2010. Now, just sampling off of last month's numbers alone, we 
as a church completely buck this trend big time. And I'm proud to say that we are well above the average in this regard. In February alone, we averaged 82% of our worshipers who were involved and engaged in Sunday school in some capacity. And my desire as your pastor would not be for us to maintain this, but to grow it. Why? Not out of some desire to hold up a meaningless statistic, but out of a desire for each and every one of us to be involved in meaningful accountability relationships where we can work through our sins and we can work through hard questions and difficult times together. And that's the purpose of the church. So why, why bring this small group statistic here up in uh, this sermon about unconfessed sin? And as as we saw last week, the, the primary place where this small group is to take place is within the household. And then that continues, therefore, from the household into the church, which is the household of God. Because small groups and Sunday school are where we foster environments for you to bear out struggles with one another. I mean, I guess we could just have open mic confession time as part of our worship services, but I feel like the mic would probably go empty. Or it would be that awkward time when like one person shared and then nobody else would be like, not me, right? This is the importance of being together as the church that we bear with one another in these things. As we continue reading, again, we see the Lord's response to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why, and again, you see that exclamation mark. That's not there just for fun. That's like that, that phrase, the Lord emphatically telling Joshua, get off your face and quit mourning. Why have you fallen on your face, in fact? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. So just like what was said in the instruction. Don't take the devoted things or you will make us devoted for destruction. And the Lord says, you have made yourself devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from on you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. The Lord will not allow his name to be profaned among the nations. And so this is the necessary sanctifying action that needed to take place for Achan's sin to be exposed. And so that's what, that's what he's saying here, is that I am willing to depart from you before I allow you to ever go before me in my name in sin. He will not allow his name to be profaned among the nations. Therefore, he sanctifies his people. And sometimes that means loss and pain and suffering. 36 people die on account of this sin. Which brings me to the next point there on your outline. The Lord exposes unconfessed sin if left unchecked. Again, the words of Moses, your, be sure your sin will find you out. And this again, why there, uh, why there is no sin that is truly hidden. Because even if it is hidden from your brothers and sisters, it will be exposed if left unchecked. The Lord will expose unconfessed sin in judgment. The continued biblical theme here is that of imputed sin. Just as Adam's sin has been imputed to all mankind, Achan's sin was imputed to the community of faith. And our great source of hope is found in the fact that our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. And in turn, his righteousness was imputed to us. So, the people, you know, I, I explained a while ago how Joshua 
takes each, each tribe, clan, household, all of it. It goes all the way down to find that it's Achan in his household. And so he gathers all the people, and they take Achan, and they stone him to death. And so, again, these, these are some of the stories where we say, like, how could that happen? It shows how seriously God takes sin against his name, especially within the covenant community of faith. And so then what happens is after they deal with the sin, they go up against I, and they conquer it easily. So, but what happens first before they do that is that um, Joshua puts up a stone memorial. He buries Achan, showing dignity, right? Showing that this wasn't an act of, of hate or despise, but this was God's judgment. And he, he puts a stone memorial over Achan. And this is the second of seven stone memorials that we see Joshua set up as he goes through the promised land. The first stone is set up in chapter 4, verse 20, in Gilgal, as a memorial of God's faithfulness in bringing Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. The second stone is set up over Achan in Chapter 7, as we just saw, chapter 7, verse 26, as a reminder of Israel's sinful heart and unfaithfulness and the consequences that come as a result of sin. The Lord wanted the people to have this memorial to say, this is what happens when you profane my name, and I will not allow my name to be profaned among the nations. And the third stone is set up simultaneously. It's set up, well, excuse me, it's set up over the king of Ai in chapter 8. You can go ahead and turn there, chapter 8 here of Joshua. And so in verses 28 through 29, they, they set up a monument to the Lord's grace and restoration that he allowed them to conquer Ai after their sin and after the sin had been dealt with. So this third monument is... Uh, testament to the Lord's grace and restoration. The fourth stone is set up simultaneously. Right, so right after they set up the third stone of grace and restoration, they set up this fourth stone is simultaneously set up as Joshua engraves a copy of the law as a reminder of Israel's communal call to live in obedience to the divine word of God. And this is what we read in chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. Verse 34, and afterward he read, this is Joshua, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly, assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So this fourth stone is set up as a reminder that this is what we are held accountable to. And so the second stone shows us what happens when we don't live in account to it. The third shows us what happens when we respond in repentance and we make things right before the Lord. The fourth is a constant reminder of what we are held accountable to. And so we, the church, as the covenant community of faith, bear the same responsibility to God's word and to one another to encourage, to admonish, and rebuke each other in love for God and for one another. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. One of the more popular verses on this matter. As Paul here in Galatians is telling these churches spread throughout Galatia uh, how 
Christ has set us free, therefore we are to be in step with the Spirit. That's chapter 5. And then, what does that look like to live out in the community of faith? To walk in step with the Spirit, to be set free from sin. Chapter 6, verse 1, Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The last final point there on your outline. The church is where unconfessed sin goes to die in the light of the cross. That we, as the covenant community of faith, the people of God, are to be a place where we bear one another's burdens faithfully. To surrender to the gospel is to join the covenant community of faith where we bear with one another to live according to God's word. The cross shines the bright light of community on the hidden corners of our heart. That we might be free of sin and then live united for his glory. The light of the cross is carried forth in the community of faith. So we must hold one another accountable. We must be ready and willing to hold our brother or sister to account. And the other side of that coin is that we must be ready and willing to be held to account. We see many other passages throughout the New Testament bearing this same truth. 1 John 1.8. I'm just going to run through these. They'll be on the screen behind me. I'll give you the references if you want to make note of them. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not with us. Or James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or Proverbs 28, verses 13 through 14, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Again, the title of this sermon was The the Defeat of Unconfessed Sin. And here's the thing. All of us are living in the defeat of unconfessed sin. And here's what I mean by that. Either we are living in the defeat as the defeated, or... We're living in that third stone. We're living in the redemption and the defeat won for us on the cross and through the grave of Christ. We must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. I'm going to move us now into our normal time of response. And normally, uh, you know, it's it's just different for each sermon uh, because... A lot of times the the passage is going to pierce uh, everybody's hearts in different ways. It's going to have different uh, different meanings and different and, and just point us and, and shepherd us in different directions. We're all coming from different um, walks in our faith, but this passage in particular has a pretty pointed prompt and a pretty pointed meaning and a pretty pointed way of landing on all of our hearts. And so I want to do something that we don't do a whole lot. And there's a reason for that because I've seen it used and abused and overused throughout the church. And that is, I want to just open up our altar this morning. And if you have anything in your heart that you want to come and lay bare and confess before the Lord, that is what this time is going to be for. Because again, normally I tell us, respond as you have feel led by the word and as the Lord has, has pierced your heart with his word. But again, this morning it's pretty pointed for all of us the same message that unconfessed sin is not hidden 
and causes unforeseen harm, and the Lord will not allow it among his people. And so uh, I'm going to allow just an open amount of time. Our altar is open if you feel led to come and bear those things out. If you feel more comfortable doing that where you're at, feel, more, feel free to do so. And then I'll pray for us, and then we'll move on to the last parts of our service. We love you. Our sins are ever before us. We ask you, Lord, that you would blot out our transgressions and create within us a clean heart, O God. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. That we might glorify and magnify your name among the nations. Let Southside be a place where sin is called out according to your truth, as well as a place where sin is wrestled with and dealt with, where it is confessed and confronted in love and truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.